But today we're going to be talking about two things, really. We're going to be talking about God's faithfulness first and foremost. Uh, and we're going to be talking about how we are called to play the position, play the role that God has called us to play. Um, now, I grew up playing organized sports. I grew up playing baseball from when I was about six years old. I started my first Little League team. I played all the way through JV, sophomore year in high school. At that point, I realized that everybody else was a lot more serious about baseball than I was, and so I decided to, to bow out. I had, I had these two kids on my team. They would field fly balls in snowstorms so that they could be, get better at tracking balls, and I was just not ready to commit to that level, uh, so, so I quit. But I'm really grateful for the time I had playing, um, playing those sports because I learned a lot. And I learned a lot that really transcended baseball. It transcended sports, and it's applied to my entire life. I learned about sportsmanship. I learned how to be a good team player. I learned how to support those around me. I learned how to win well. I learned how to lose well. I learned so many things that have really applied to the rest of my life in ways I didn't understand that it would when I was 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 playing these sports. And one of the most important lessons that I learned was how to play my position. And so I played baseball, and in baseball, if you're not familiar, there's nine people on the field. There's a lot of people out on the field at a time. And everybody has a zone they're supposed to cover. Everybody has a specific role they're supposed to play. Now, some, some, some of those positions are a little more prestigious than others, right? If you're the shortstop, if you're first base, you're getting in on all the action. That's where they put the, the best players. I wasn't the best player. I was like a solid player. I spent a lot of time in right field. <laughs> if you're familiar with baseball, right field is where you send a person that's like good enough but not great. You don't want all the pressure of left field on him, but he can, he, can, he can handle a hit the right field every now and then. But what I learned was that even though as a, as, a, as a young kid, it was tempting to want to be promoted into these other positions, into these other roles that I just wasn't built well to play, what I learned was that the best thing I could do was learn how to play the position I'd been given extremely well. The best thing I could do is make sure that whenever it came time for me to do what I was supposed to do, that I would execute well, that I would do it flawlessly, that I, that I put the practice in, that I put the work in so that I could play my position well. And instead of thinking about, well, I'm not the center of the attention, I'm not the center of the team, thinking about, well, this is what I need to do so that my team can win, so that my team can get the W, so that collectively we can accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. And so today we're going to spend a lot of time looking at Mary. This is the birth announcement of Jesus, and we're going to look at uh, the conversation between Mary and the angel, and we're going to look at God's faithfulness, and we're going to look at how Mary was willing to play the position God gave her to play. And so if you have your service sheets with you, you can read from Luke 1, 26 through 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. 
And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And, his to, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And now Mary asks probably the most obvious question that anybody has ever asked. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And, angel, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so there's a lot going on in this conversation. But the first thing that I think we should recognize before diving deeper into it is that this is God's story, not anybody else's. What do I mean by that? Well, Luke takes a lot of care to weave this story into the greater narrative of God's work. So Luke writes this in a, in a very specific way that would have caused his readers to understand, to make connections to the work that God had been doing through all of humanity, through all of existence before this point. What do I mean? Well, he writes this in a way uh, that would have made people think about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. If you, if you were here last week, we talked about the birth announcement of John. We talked about uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Elizabeth was barren. She was beyond the age of having children. God appears to, the angel appears to Zechariah and says, you're going to have a child. They don't believe him. Eventually, lo and behold, God's will comes to pass and they have a baby. Anybody reading this story at the time Luke read it would have made a connection to Abraham and Sarah. If you're not familiar with Abraham and Sarah from the book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah were also way older than it was possible to have children. Uh, uh, Sarah had been barren her whole life. They had never had children. God promised her. Uh, God promised Abraham that he was going to give them a son. They didn't believe. They laughed at God. Lo and behold, over time, God's word comes to pass, and they have a son. Now, there was a third person to the Genesis saga, and that was Hagar. Hagar was the maidservant of, of Sarah. Hagar also became pregnant during that time, but was in a very different situation from Sarah. She was not, uh, she was the maidservant. Sarah was married to Abraham. Abraham was very powerful, very well connected, had a lot of money. They had all the resources they needed. Hagar was the maidservant. She was in a very different situation. And having this baby, becoming pregnant when she did, actually put her in a really precarious situation. It put her in a really uncomfortable spot. And we're going to talk about how that can apply to Mary in a second. But what Luke is doing here is he's saying, this isn't a story about Mary. This isn't a story about this one moment in time, but this is connected to the greater story of God and everything that God has been doing for hundreds and thousands of years. 
How else does he do this? Well, he tells Mary that this son, Jesus, is going to be born of God. Later on, when Luke is tracing the lineage of Jesus, when he gets to Adam, he calls Adam the son of God. Jesus is coming as the second Adam. Through Adam, sin came into the earth. Through Jesus, redemption was going to come to humanity. Luke is drawing these connections. This isn't a moment in time. This isn't God just showing up. This isn't God finally coming onto the scene, but this is a continuation of the work that God has always been doing. The angel's announcement is full of Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament descriptions of God and the Messiah. As Luke is writing this account, the people who were reading it would have been able to think back to the scriptures that they were familiar with, or they would have been able to look back at those scriptures and see the clear connections that Luke was making. This wasn't just a single moment in time. This was a continuation of God's work. This isn't a story about Mary, and it's not a story about Elizabeth, and it's not a story about Zechariah. This is the, the story of God. They are all playing a small role in the greater narrative of God redeeming humanity, of God bringing his creation back to himself. And we are part of the same story today. This scope that Luke gives us of stepping back and saying, okay, it's not just about this one person in this one moment, but it's about the greater plan of God. This is the scope that we should view our own lives with today. This is a very helpful tool for us in our faith. But so often we do the opposite. So often we make ourselves the main characters of the story. We make ourselves the central characters. And instead of us playing a supporting role in God's story, we invite God in to come play a supporting role in ours. We say, this is the way my life is going. God, you can come and help me get there. But this scope that Luke gives us here gives us a perspective to help us guard against that. Because look, if this story isn't even about Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus, then it's for sure not about this Mexican kid from Sunset Park in the year 2022. That was a Sunset Park anthem. Right on cue, just like we rehearsed. Right, if this story's not even about Mary, it's surely not about us. This is the story of God redeeming humanity. This is, this is a story about God's faithfulness, about God keeping his promises, and about God accomplishing his plan. We're here to play supporting roles. Most days, I'm not even a supporting role. I'm just an extra. I'm the dude in the background with a cup of coffee while the action is happening up here. But we're not the main characters of this story. And why am I saying this? This is important perspective to have. It's essential and it's crucial because you might not like the role that you've been given to play. Right? So often we think about what we should and shouldn't be doing 
what decisions we should and shouldn't make, what directions we should and shouldn't go by metrics like peace. Right? I've said it. I take a guess that most of the people in this room have said it at some point. If you haven't said it, I take an even bigger guess that you've heard somebody say it. I don't feel peace about it, so I'm not going to do it. That's the metric that we use. And what we mean by peace isn't that deep peace that God gives us. What we typically mean by peace is a lack of conflict. Is I don't feel any conflict about this. I don't feel uh, torn about this. I'm not scared about this. I don't feel uncertain about this. And so therefore, it must be God. And what we're saying uh, uh, inversely is that if I feel any of those things, then this can't be what God's calling me to do. And that perspective might make sense if the story was about you. But if the story's about God, then it matters much less how you feel about the role you're given to play, and it matters much more about how what God is calling you to do plays into the larger narrative of him redeeming humanity. Did you notice when we were reading the scripture that Mary didn't respond ecstatically? This was the most important birth announcement that was ever announced in the history of humanity. Nobody more important than Jesus was ever going to be born. Nobody more important than Jesus had ever been born. This is the greatest news that has ever been announced. The Messiah, the one who was going to redeem God's people, was finally coming onto the scene. But Mary doesn't do a backflip. Mary doesn't say, oh, thank you, God, you chose me. I can't believe it. I'm unworthy. She doesn't do all of these things that we'd expect her to be doing. In fact, the only words were given to describe how she was feeling during that conversation were the, was verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, let's think about for a second the situation that Mary was being put in. Mary was unmarried. She was betrothed, which is like being engaged. She was promised, she, she had made a promise to marry somebody and it was expected that she was a virgin. And she was. Now the angel comes and tells her, hey, you're gonna have a baby. Now, put aside the miraculousness of a virgin giving birth for a second and put yourself in Mary's shoes. At some point in the next couple of weeks or months, she was going to have to go to her fiance and tell him, hey, I'm pregnant, but don't worry. I ain't doing nothing sketchy. This baby's from God. That's the conversation she was going to have to have. That's what this, the conversation with the angel implies, that that conversation was going to have to happen sometime in the near future. And what would have happened? Joseph would have been like, you think I'm dumb? Who would have believed that? Who would have taken somebody at their word for that? What was very likely going to happen to Mary was that she was going to be put out. 
this was going to be a very difficult situation for Mary. She was probably going to lose her engagement, which was her security. She was probably going to live her life as a single woman. And living your life as a single woman in this context is not like living your life as a single woman today. It meant that you were up for, you were in for a life full of hardship, full of struggle, full of not having what you needed, full of people looking down upon you. Her reputation would have been destroyed. Nobody else would have been, been willing to marry her. Mary was about to get put into a potentially very dangerous, very harmful, very uncomfortable situation. But she was willing to put her life on the line to play the role that God had given her. You notice she doesn't ask a lot of questions. The only question she asked was the most obvious one. But I'm a virgin. How am I going to have a baby? And the angel gives her the explanation, and she's just like, cool. All right, no more questions. We don't see the doubt that we saw with Zechariah in the temple. We don't see the doubt that we saw when God made a similar promise to Abraham and Sarah. We don't see all of these things. We just see Mary saying, okay, look at what she says specifically. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What we see from Mary isn't a lack of conflict, but an understanding of her role, but an understanding of the position that she's supposed to play in God's greater story of him redeeming humanity. She says, I am your servant. Why does she say this? She's saying, I don't serve my own needs. I serve yours. I don't do what's best for me. I do what you say is best. I don't go where I think I should go. I go where you tell me to go. This is what she's telling God. She's saying, no matter what the outlook of this seems like to me, if you tell me to do it, then I'm going to do it. I'm not here to serve my own preferences. I exist to do what you direct me to do. And this makes sense when we look at the story through the scope of through the scope that Luke gives us through this greater narrative scope. But if we were looking just at Mary, if we were to pluck Mary out of the story and look at just her life in, in, in a vacuum, she'd be crazy to be like, yeah, sure. I'd have done a lot of negotiating. I'd have been like, but wait, you're going to make sure I'm good, though, right? Could we, could we go talk to Joseph right now together? <laughs> could I get a contract written up that you're going to take care of me and I'm not going to be broke and homeless? And... But when we look at it through the scope of God's greater story, isn't it more important that the Messiah be born than it is that Mary lived the life she expected to live? Isn't it more important that the Messiah be born than Mary go forward with the, with the engagement that she had planned and start her own family and live her own life in the way that she thought was best? Isn't it more important that Jesus be born to come to the earth to redeem the sins of the world? That's far more important. 
Because God's purpose is far more important than our individual preferences and our individual comforts. And looking at this story through this larger scope should help us when we have to make decisions that we don't like. If we're all just a part of God's story, then what's most important is that his plan be accomplished. You know what's wild to me? And I hadn't, I hadn't ever put this together before I started doing the, the study for this, this sermon. But about 33 years after this conversation, about 33 years after this announcement, Jesus finds himself in a garden. And he's praying to God because God is asking him to do something that he doesn't really want to do, something that's going to bring him great pain and great harm, something that's going to bring him shame. He's going to take upon the cross. He's going to take upon the full wrath of God, and he's feeling stressed about it. And he's in the garden praying to God, and he prays almost the same exact prayer. He says, not my will, your will be done. He sounds just like his earthly mother. Let it be unto me as you have said. This is the way we're called to live our lives. And I know that on his face, this can seem like a bleak prospect. This can seem like a real downer. And if I can be honest... I often struggle with the role that God has given me to play. And I don't mean I used to struggle with it, and now I don't. I don't mean I struggled with it a couple months ago, and now I'm cool. I mean I struggle with it. I wrestle with it. I wrestled with it as I wrote this sermon. Sometimes the role that God calls you to step into isn't the role that you saw yourself stepping into. It's not the life path you thought you would, you would choose. It's not what you saw for yourself. But I've learned that God is trustworthy. And the best place that I can be is wherever he tells me to be. Over the past six months or so, me and Justin have had many, many conversations and every now and then he'll ask me, is this still what you want to do? We've had that conversation a lot. And every time he asks me, I answer the same way. And it's, this is what God's calling me to do. And so whether I want to do it matters a lot less. What I feel about it will get worked out over time. The thing that I'm confident in is that this is what God's calling me to do, and so I can step into it confidently, regardless of how I might feel about it. And why can I feel this way? Why can I be confident that I should go where God is calling me to go? Why can I be confident that I should just play the role that God's given me to play? Well, it's because this last point that we're going to pull from Luke. And it's this. God is going to do what he said he was going to do. See, another thing Luke is doing here is highlighting the long history of God's faithfulness. God has a long history of faithfulness that spanned hundreds and thousands of years. 
As a matter of fact, the first time that he announces his plan to redeem humanity is way back in Genesis 2. He tells, he tells uh, uh, Eve, before he banishes them from the garden, he says, your seed will crush the head of the serpent and his heel will be bruised. He was talking about Jesus from the announcement of God's plan to redeem humanity to the announcement of Jesus being born was hundreds and thousands of years, was generations and generations and generations and generations. And it might have seemed to some that God forgot his plan. Or it might have seemed to some that God changed his mind. Or maybe we misheard him. Or maybe this isn't what he's actually going to do. But Luke gives us reassurance that God's word is true and will come to pass no matter how long we have to wait for it. God has a plan and he hasn't forgotten about it. He's meticulously orchestrating all things in that direction. And beloved, there are so many promises in scripture for us. There are things in scripture that God has said are for us that we haven't seen the full fulfillment of yet. But if we take these things at, at, at their word, if we take God at his word about what he's promised us, then there's no amount of pain that I'm going to feel on this earth that's going to be worth giving up what he promised me I would have. He promises us salvation through Jesus, forgiveness of sins. He promises us righteousness, rightness with God, the ability to come back to God. He promises us eternal life and rest with him. He promises to take away all pain and confusion and doubt and hurt and sorrow and tears. To exist forever with him in perfect harmony with him, the way he intended in the garden. These are the things that God has promised us. And if we can keep these things front of mind, if we can keep these things at the center of our lives, well, then we'll start to talk about hardship on earth the way Peter did in 1 Peter. When talking to a church of persecuted Christians, of people who are being killed for their faith, Peter says this, he says, Though for now you may suffer various trials for a little while. Because in comparison to the glory that God has promised us, anything that happens in this life is a drop in a bucket. It's a drop in the ocean. It doesn't compare. It doesn't come close. See, but we can also grow tired or doubtful waiting for these things. Right, Because all through the epistles, through the New Testament scripture, the, the apostles are saying, Jesus is coming back soon. It's been a couple thousand years now. But Luke is showing us another promise that took a couple thousand years that God didn't bail on, that God didn't change his mind about, that God didn't forget about, that was all part of God's plan. And if we can look at the birth of Jesus and say, that took a couple thousand years, but God's never lied before, then for the next 
couple thousand years that I got to wait for the fulfillment of the rest of these promises, I can do it no problem. I can do it without doubting him because he's never lied before. Why would I think he's going to lie now? He's never broken a promise before. Why would I expect him to break a promise now? When we have a right view of God's faithfulness, of God's promises, of what God said he will do, when we trust fully that he will do what he said he's going to do, then we can stand in our rightful position. Then we can stop trying to make God an accessory to get what we want. And we can say, God, whatever role you call me to play, I am your servant. Let it be unto me as you have said. I will walk wherever you call me to walk, no matter how dangerous it feels, no matter how uncomfortable it gets. See, because what we're doing here on this earth is a speck. It's, 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 it's a piece of dust floating. It's a vapor in the wind in comparison to eternity, to what we're promised, to what God has waiting for us. So what is it today as the band comes back up? What is it today that God is calling you to do? What, it, what, what direction is God leading you in that might be uncomfortable, that might be opposed to your preferences, that might go against what you thought your life was going to look like? That's a role you'd rather not be playing. Beloved, we have to trust God like Mary did, like Jesus did. Our life's prayer should be, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you're not a man that you should lie, that we can trust you fully and wholly without doubting that you will do what you said you were gonna do. And we thank you that you call us to play even a small role in the work that you are doing. God, strengthen our faith. Help us to stand in the face of doubt and discomfort and be resilient as Mary was and go where you've called us to go. We can only do this by your strength and by your Holy Spirit. In your name, Jesus, we pray.